Section 17 of Astounding Stories 10, October 1930. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Eddie Sheffield, Jr. at www.eddysheffield.com. Astounding Stories 10, October 1930 by Various. Reader's Corner, Part 1 by Various. The Reader's Corner, a meeting place for readers of Astounding Stories. The Invisible X-Flyers. The following is a semi-technical description of the operation of the Invisible X-Flyers used in Jeddah of the Lowlands as compiled by Philip Grant in the year 2021 from official records of the Anti-War Department of the United States of North America and discovered recently by Ray Cummings. The attainment of mechanical invisibility reached a state of perfection in the year 2000, sufficient to make it practical for many uses. For a century, this result has been sought. It came about the year 2000, not as a single startling discovery, but as the culmination of the patient labor of many men during many years. The popular mind has always considered that science advances by a series of great scientific discoveries, unprecedented, revolutionary. That is not so. Each step in the progress of scientific achievement is built most carefully upon the one beneath it. And generally, the revolutionary, unprecedented discovery has very little of itself that is new. Rather, it is a new combination of older, perhaps seemingly impractical knowledge. Every scientific theory, every device, is the offspring from a large and varied family tree of many scientific ancestors, each of whom in this day was a remarkable personage. Thus it is with the principles of mechanical invisibility. I deal here with the famous X-Flyers. The operation of the plane itself is immaterial. Its motors, its wing-spread surfaces, its aerial controls. I am concerned only with the scientific principles underlying its power of invisibility. Three scientific factors are involved. First, the process known as de-electron erasion. Second, the theories of color absorption. Third, the material, inevitable deflection or bending of light rays when passing through a magnetic field. I take each of the three in order. The forerunners of de-electron erasure were the Martel effects, the experiments of Charles Martel in Paris, 1937. A new electric current of a different character, now called the oscillating current, as distinct from the alternating and direct, was developed. Metallic plates were electromagnetized to produce an enveloping magnetic field of somewhat different character from any field formerly known. Dr. Norton Grinfell followed this in 1946 by using the Martel oscillating current to obtain a reverse effect, a similar disturbance of electrode balance, but not a surcharge, an exhaustion, an anti-electrical state, instead of a state of magnetism. A metallic mass so treated and with a constant flow of oscillating current holding its subnormal electronic balance was then said to be de-electroneered. Scientific discoveries are largely made by the trial and error system. The scientist takes what he finds. Generally, he does not know at first what it means. Martel took his oscillating current and discovered the Martel magnetic levitation, whereby gravity was lessened and then completely nullified. Grenfell, with his de-electroneration, increased the power of gravity. The two were combined by Grenfell and his associates, and the secret of interplanetary flight was at hand. But there was a host of other workers not interested in space flyers. They probed in other directions. It was found that the subnormal magnetic field surrounding a metallic substance in a state of de-electroneration had two unusual properties. Its color absorption was high, and it bent light rays from their normal straight path into a curve abnormally great. 
Yet, though it absorbed the color of the rays emanating from the de-electroniered material, the metal itself increased this result, the magnetic field, while bending the rays passing through it, from distant objects behind it, nevertheless left their color and all their inherent properties unchanged. The principles of color absorption are these. A pigment, a paint, a dye, if you will, is red because it absorbs from the light rays of the sun all the other colors and leaves only red to be reflected from it to the eye. Or violet because all the rest are absorbed and the violet is reflected. Or black because all are absorbed and white the reverse, all blended and reflected. Color is dependent upon vibratory motion. The solar spectrum, its range of visibility through the primary colors from red to violet, can be likened to a range of radio wavelengths, vibration frequencies, and when we eliminate them all save the violet, that is what we have left, and the radio to hear and color absorption to see. Thus, a de-electroniered metal was found to produce black, not black as habitually we meet it, a shiny black, a dull black, but a true black, a real absence of light ray reflection, a nothingness to see, in effect an invisibility. A word of explanation is necessary regarding the other property of the de-electroniered field, the bending of distant light rays into a curve, yet leaving their spectrum unchanged. It was Albert Einstein who first made the statement, in the years following the turn of the century at 1900, that it was a normal natural thing for a ray of light to be slightly deflected from its straight path when passing through a magnetic field. The claim caused worldwide interest, for upon its truth or falsity the whole fabric of the Einstein theory of relativity was woven. An eclipse of the sun in the 1920s established that light is actually bent in the manner Einstein calculated. A magnetic field surrounds the sun. In those days, they did not know that it was a field of subnormal electronic balance. In effect, the result of de-electroniration. It was found, nevertheless, that stars close to the limb of the sun appeared, not in their true positions, but shifted in just the directions and with the amount of shift Einstein predicted. The light rays coming from them to the eye of the observer on Earth were curved in passing so close to the sun. But the color bands of their spectrums were unaltered, and some of the stars actually were behind the sun, yet because of the curved path of the light were visible. I mention this because it is an important aspect of the subject of mechanical invisibility. With the foregoing factors, the secret of mechanical invisibility is constructed. Gracely, an American, following a long series of worldwide experiments, tests of current strength, frequencies of oscillation, suitable metals, etc., which I cannot detail here, in 1955 was the final developer of the mechanism subsequently used in the X-Flyers. Gracely produced what he christened a luminoid spectrite, a lightweight alloy which, when carrying an oscillating electric current of the proper frequency, produced the effects I have described. It absorbed from the light rays coming from the metal all the colors of the solar spectrum, well beyond the range of the human eye at both ends of the scale. The result was a visible nothingness. A moment's thought will make clear that term. A visible nothingness is not invisibility. The fact that something was there but could not be seen was obvious. A black hat with a light on it and placed against an average background is almost as easy to see as a white hat. Gracely's first crude experiments were made with an aluminoid spectrite cube, a small brick a foot in each dimension. The cube glowed, turned, dark, then black, then was gone. He had it resting on a white table with a white background, and the fact that the cube was still there was perfectly obvious. It was as though a whole of nothingness were set against the white table. It outlined the cube, reconstructed it so that for practical purposes the eye saw not a white aluminoid brick, but a dead black one. And this is very much what a man sees when he stares at his black hat on a table. The hat occults its background and thus reconstructs itself. 
but when Gracely determined the proper vibrations of his oscillating current to coincide with all the other material factors he was using, the final result was before him, a real invisibility. He used a patterned background, a symmetrically checkered surface most difficult of all. The light rays coming from this background passed through the magnetic field surrounding the invisible colorless cube and were bent into a curved path. But their own color spectrum, in actuality the color, shape, all the visible characteristics of the background, was not greatly altered. The observer saw what actually was behind the invisible cube, the checkered background, sometimes slightly distorted, but nevertheless sufficiently clear for its abnormality to escape notice. Thus the cube's outlines were not reconstructed, and in effect it had vanished. In practical workings with the X-Flyers, no such difficult test as Gracely's cube and rectangular symmetrically patterned background is ever met. The varying background behind a plane, at rest or flying, and particularly at night, demands less perfection of background than Gracely's laboratory conditions. I am informed that an X-Flyer can vaguely be seen, or sensed rather, from some angles and under certain and unfavorable conditions of light, and depending on its line of movement relative to the angle of observation, and the type and color lighting of its background. But under most conditions, it represents a very nearly perfect mechanical invisibility. There is one aspect of the subject with which I may close this brief paper. I give it without technical explanation. It seems to me an amusing angle. The theory of stereoscopics, the vision of the twin lenses of the human eyes, set a distance apart to give the perception of depth of the third dimension, is in itself a subject tremendously interesting and worthy of anyone's study. I have no space for it here, nor would it be strictly relevant. I need only state that a two-eyed man sees partially around an object, by virtue of the different angles from which each of his eyes gaze at it, and thus sees a trifle more of the background than would otherwise be the case. And this, these two viewpoints blended in his brain, gives him his perception of depth of solidity, the difference between a real scene of three dimensions and a painted scene on a canvas of two dimensions with only the artist's skill and perspective to simulate the third. And I cannot refrain from mentioning that in government tests of the anti-war department to determine the perfection of the invisibility of the X-Flyers, it was a one-eyed man who proved that they were not always totally invisible. From Ray Cummings. Thank you. Dear Editor, I just want you to know this. I am a reader of your truly named Astounding Stories. I really enjoyed reading The Spawn of the Stars, also Brigands of the Moon, and I am very glad to hear that we are going to have another of Charles W. Diffin's stories in the next issue, The Moon Master. From J.R. Penner, 376 Woodlawn Avenue, Buffalo, New York. A Whiz. Dear Editor, I am only a young girl, 16 years of age, but I am greatly interested in science. I have no mastermind by any means, but have worked out many a difficult problem in school for my science professor. Your magazine is a whiz. I haven't missed an installment since it started. Give us more stories like Monsters of Moyen and The Beetle Horde. Signed, Josephine Frankhauser, 4949 Chestnut Street, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Pretty good. Dear Editor, I received Astounding Stories for May, and it is pretty good. The next issue is number six, and I hope it is better than the previous ones. There have been some stories that do not belong in a science fiction magazine, such as The Cave of Horror, The Corpse on the Grating, The Soul Master, and The Man Who Was Dead. There is also another story that was printed in the May issue that, so far as I think, does not belong in this magazine. That is, Murder Madness. Even all the other stories seem to be fantastic. Weird. Why not try to publish something on the H.G. Wells, E.R. Burroughs type of stories, also Ray Cummings, The Man Who Mastered Time, or The Time Machine by Wells. 
Signed, Louis Winsler, 1933 Woodbine Street, Brooklyn, New York. From Ye Reader. Dear Ye Editor, That sounds rather medieval, a little, for the editor of so novel a magazine, but nevertheless, let's forget that and talk about some astounding stories. First, I would suggest that you eliminate all stories of interplanetary travel. I would be different, as there are already several magazines on the market which deal almost exclusively with such stories. Now, tales like The Beetle Horde, and those written by Murray Leinster, and those concerning that Sherlock Holmes, Dr. Bird, and those about the deep sea, like Into the Ocean's Depths. Such stories are astounding and good. And once in a while, let's have a humorous story. You know, a bit of humor now and then. Well, anyhow, publish any kind of astounding story, just so it is different and does not deal with interplanetary travel. Now about the magazine. I think it is a good publication, and I like it wera wera mooch. I bought it on impulse and happened to be lucky enough to get the first issue, and nary an issue have I missed since. Although I possess an abject horror of any kind of insect, I enjoyed the beetle horde to its fullest extent, but here's hoping nothing like that will really happen. Another thing I'd like to state is this. Some readers made a remark about not publishing any of Verne's works. I say you should. Why should any such great author be disregarded in so good a magazine? And is it not interesting to note that some of his stories have become actual realizations? Even Poe's should be published. All those dead authors whose stories would be considered good were they living. Why should any person ask not to have such good stories in your magazine? Perhaps there are some people who would enjoy them, but do not have the means nor time to buy these great works in book form. Think it over, ye editor. Think it over. And now, to finish up, I'll say, are there any readers like me, a girl, or do only men and boys read astounding stories? Signed, Gertrude Hemken, 5730 South Ashland Avenue, Chicago, Illinois. Short and Sweet Dear Editor, Congratulations! have followed up every issue of Astounding Stories and have found them to be the best yet. I have one fault to find, and that is you do not publish Astounding Stories often enough. Thirty days is too far between. Signed, Bernard Bauer, 235 Holland Street, Syracuse, New York. Yes, sir. Dear Editor, I read Astounding Stories all the time, although I'm just a boy. I think they're okay. They give me a great kick. I think The Moon Master was the best story I ever read. Please ask Mr. Diffin to write more like it. But then, all the stories are really peppy. Signed, Jack Hudson, St. Mark's School, Southborough, Massachusetts. Undoubtedly the best. Dear Editor, your magazine is undoubtedly the best science fiction mag on the stands. Why? Because of your authors. There is not another science fiction book on the stands that has stories by Victor Rousseau, Murray Leinster, Ray Cummings... A.T. Locke, A.J. Burks, C.W. Diffin, S.W. Ellis, and many others. Some of your readers want stories by Dr. David H. Keller, Ed Earl Rep, and Walter Cately. Well, I just wanted to tell you that I have stopped reading all other science fiction mags on account of the frequency of these authors in them. So please, please don't destroy my last stronghold. Also, I would not be against reprints. There is only one so far who has objected to reprints, while there have been several asking you to reprint A. Merritt's People of the Pit. It would not only satisfy your present readers, but, because of the great popularity of A. Merritt among the reading circles of today, it would gain for you many more readers. Harl Vincent is an indispensable acquisition to our magazine. His stories are not only all excellent, but his stories all contain good science. He will bring you many new readers. May I add my voice to every other reader's in the cry for the reprinting of People of the Pit by A. Merritt? Why not give us some stories by him? He's pretty near the best writer living today. 
I don't care for the Mars stories by Burroughs. He's too much long-sword and short-sword. A. Merritt, however, is the man for you to get and keep. The schedule for July looks doggone good and suggestive to the imagination. You might increase the contents of the book. The only thing wrong with the stories is that you have too many repetitions. Please get A. Merritt. If you publish stories by him, you will see a very noticeable increase in your subscription column. Another author who would repeat A. Merritt's action on your subscription column is Dr. Edward Elmer Smith. Please see about these authors. Signed, Gabriel Kirshner, Box 301, Temple, Texas. From Young Miss Nightingale. Dear Editor, I've been wanting to write to you for a long time, but only now I'm able to do so. When I first got a copy of your magazine, I just grabbed it and started reading it. That magazine had the first installment of Brigands of the Moon in it. Now, after one magazine has been read, I nearly burst until the next one comes. As for the writers, I like Ray Cummings, Harl Vincent, Sewell Peasley Wright, and Murray Leinster Best. I like interplanetary stories best. I also like stories of the fourth dimension and those of ancient races of people living in uninhabited parts of the Earth. So far, I have liked especially well The Ray of Madness, Cold Light, From the Ocean's Depths, and its sequel, Into the Ocean's Depths, Brigands of the Moon, and Murder Madness. Of course, I like the others, too. I'm only a mere girl that accounts for this poor typewriting, only ten years old, but I know my likes and dislikes. Signed, Ellen Laura Nightingale, 223 South Main Street, Fairmont, Minnesota. End of Section 17, Reader's Corner, Part 1. Recording by Eddie Sheffield, Jr. at www.eddiesheffield.com.